have a think around what is the point of what I'm doing? Like, why am I getting up in the morning? Why am I wasting my time and my energy to do? And if you can figure out what that is and you figure out internally what the impact that you want to have is, and in Cop Status, I talk about a really simple way of doing that is coming up with something called an impact statement. Welcome to the Redefining Sales podcast, where we reimagine and redefine sales in a digital world. In this new series, we have absolutely scoured the world to bring you only the best of the very best. We will be working with each of the thought leaders to unpack all of their years of experience, their pearls of wisdom and nuggets of gold into bite-sized chunks that will enable you to redefine your sales. Welcome to the Redefining Sales Podcast. I'm Abby White. This week, we have the most phenomenal guest for you, and I cannot tell you how excited I am to share this episode with you. I am interviewing the incredible Tim Duggan, author of Killer Thinking and Cult Status, and formerly co-founder of Junkie Media, which he successfully grew, scaled, and sold to O-Media. We unpack so much in this conversation. We cover an enormous amount of ground. But before I tell you a little bit more about Tim, please make sure that if you are enjoying Redefining Sales podcast, that you subscribe so that you never miss an episode with us. Now, back to Tim. Tim, as I mentioned, is the author of two books. He started out by launching in 2020, Cult Status, and then went on just a couple of weeks ago now in 2022 to launch Killer Thinking. Prior to that, both him and his co-founder founded Junkie Media, which went on to be one of the leading publishers for Australian millennials and had over 4 million subscribers. And as I mentioned before, it then went to be sold to the ASX-listed Media. Tim not only um, does all of that, he also is the chairman of Digital Publishers Alliance, an industry body that represents over 100 titles from leading independent journal um, digital publishers. Before all of that started, he actually began his career as a music journalist for Rolling Stone and sits on several boards now, including the Griffin Theatre. Tim lives in Sydney at the moment, but is about to relocate to Europe with his husband, Ben, and dog, Winnie. And uh, Winnie was making her presence known by barking at the very beginning. So bless her, she had to depart so that we could really dive into Tim's brain. In this episode, we're going to talk about actually how do we work with millennials and target millennials, because now they are moving into such key decision-making roles um, and becoming such an influential segment. So we start there in the conversation. We go through some of Tim's growth strategies in terms of how did he grow and scale junkie media. Um, We then go through cult status. What does it mean to have cult status? What are some good examples of cult status? And how do we start on that journey, whether we're a small business owner or we're a large corporate? Um, We then go through to killer thinking. What does it take to have Kenneth killer thinking Um, and not just killer thinking but killer execution so that that great idea sees the light of day. Um, We call BS on the fact that 
people think I'm not creative and I've been one of those people so I can heavily relate to this part of the conversation. Um, and we talk about some of the key steps to essentially deciding and honing what is the right idea to pursue. If you're struggling between two ideas, which one do you go with? And then how do you gain that momentum? There is so much in this episode for absolutely everybody. So I hope you have your pad, your pen, and you are ready to sit back and enjoy. Welcome to the Redefining Sales podcast. This week, we have the incredible Tim Duggan on the podcast. Tim, welcome. Thank you, Abby. It's great to be here. I am super, super, super excited. I was saying to Tim just before we came on air, Tim wins an award from me of the person I have listed the most questions that I want to ask and could not narrow the field on. So that's a prize for you, Tim. That's a great rule, a great award. And hopefully we can get through some of the questions as there's, there's loads of things to talk about. I know so many things. So I'm going to dive straight in on that note. So I want to start out with junkie media and go back in time on, on your journey there. Obviously, you co-founded the business, um, which went on to be the leading publisher for Australian millennials. Now, I'm really curious about this because we're noticing a bit of a trend at the moment with a lot of our clients and our clients' clients where more millennials are becoming into senior decision-making roles. There's more influence and buying power there. And so people are sort of then asking themselves the question of, well, how do we actually address that market? So I'm curious, given you've had such success with millennials, what do you think the key is to capturing the attention of millennials? And also why, why are millennials different? Why has it changed? Or has it yeah, changed? So great question. We could probably do a whole podcast just on this topic. So I'll try and be succinct. <laughs> Um, I've spent most of my career for the first 20 years um, working with millennials, um, creating content for millennials, hiring them. Um, I consider myself, I'm 41, and I consider myself officially the world's oldest living millennial, which is my title I think I'm going to have on my gravestone. Um, and <laughs> the reason why we're talking about them so much, the reason why they always come up is because the millennial generation is a really powerful generation that's really coming to its fore right now. So we had baby boomers before that, so kind of born after the Second World War for the next 15 or 20 years. They were the previously powerful generation. Gen X in the middle kind of got a bit squeezed because baby boomers were so powerful. And millennials now are starting to move into positions of power. So they're becoming CEOs, they're becoming heads of states, they're becoming politicians. And the reason why that's really important is because the, generally, and, and I'm the first to admit that you, it's also hard to... Um, paint an entire generation with a very broad brushstroke sometimes. Um, but generally, most millennials, so kind of roughly 25 to 40-ish year olds, um, have had similar inputs in terms of like macroeconomic trends, like in what's happened with global politics and what's happened in Australia in particular. So with all of that said, millennials um, are quite a unique bunch of, um, of people, particularly in Australia, who do things like um, we really demand more from the businesses that we work with. So we really demand that they act ethically, they act with integrity. Um, that is one of the biggest kind of changes that I've tracked over the past 15 years of, or so of working with millennials. Um, and the other thing that's really important to kind of note here is that need for recognition um, in previous um, phases in history, there was a pretty clear way of showing that you are successful to the external world. So things like you would leave university, you'd get a job, you'd buy your first small apartment, you'd upgrade that a few years later into a bigger apartment and finally into a house. 
um, a lot of that's been taken away thanks to um, you know global policies and economic um, reasons that make it really hard to do things like buy a house. So instead, things like recognition and reward and titles are really important to millennials as a way of showing externally um, how they've been successful. That is so interesting. So a bit of a follow-up question for that. How, like, what would be some of your recommendations of how you navigate that? And I'm probably going completely off topic, but it's kind of relevant is at the moment, you know, we're in what's being called the great resignation, you know, you're seeing everyone resign. And so I think some of what you've talked about not only is interesting on my original point, which is like, how do you market to them? How do you sell to them? But it's also interesting in terms of, well, then how do you retain those people in your organization if they're your top talent, if actually they are being driven by what do you stand for as a company? And how are you going to acknowledge me with that, not just change in role, but but perhaps the job title that goes with it? Yeah, there's, and there's a couple of things you can do. Um, the first one is being really clear about what you stand for as a company. So being really clear about what your purpose is and making sure that you communicate that really clearly and as honestly and open to other people so that hopefully your employees identify with that purpose and want to stay with there um, because it, it gels with the purpose of why they want to work. Um, the second thing is about how you communicate um, with them. So about being as honest and no bullshit and open-minded um, as you can. Um, some, you know, including the bad parts of business and the good parts. It's not all rosy out there, mm. but being really clear in your communication. Um, and the third one is around really trying to look at how you recognize and reward, how you can do that often, repeatedly, publicly, um, so that you are kind of making sure that they are brought along on the journey and they feel really valued as part of the team. Yeah. Oh, we need to do a separate podcast on that. Okay. <laughs> yes. I, I told you at the start I could talk about this. It is such a really <laughs> deep, interesting topic. Um, there's a lot of myths around um, your millennials and, and what they have and haven't done. Um, and I've spent the better part of 15 years doing research on them. So I think we've spoken to about 25 or 30,000 people over the past 15 years that I originally talked wow. about a lot in my first book, Cult Status and now keep talking about in Killer Thinking and beyond. But we'll talk about that in a second, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm So I'm def I'm reading Killer Thinking at the moment. I'm going the wrong way round. Does that matter? So I've done Killer Thinking first. Does that matter? No, no, it doesn't matter at all. They're, they're both part of the same universe is how I like to think about it. But they're not. it's not a sequel. The more exists in this world that I um, believe exists, which is a pretty optimistic kind of positive way of looking at the world, which is that businesses can do good and that they're probably one of the best levers for how to um, affect change. And therefore, I really love the idea of like kind businesses and businesses that have impact. And that yeah, is, yeah. if you've read Killer Thinking, you can then go back and read Cult Status. Um, and it should, in fact, really dovetail nicely into each other. Yeah. And I agree with your point around, um, we did some research for a company recently, and what we found was corporate social responsibility was actually coming out really, really, really highly. And whereas a few years ago, I think sometimes that was being treated as a tick box exercise for many people, it was actually coming out really strongly as what customers were looking for. And there was such genuine intent there. I think it also showed with the situation with Russia and Ukraine, how many businesses so quickly got behind that, pulled out. And again, people were looking for that to go, what do you stand for? And not just what do you stand for? What are you going to do about it? Uh, very much so. I, I, in fact, think that most of us think that governments have kind of failed us a bit on a bunch of topics that we really care about. Look, talk, look at the climate crisis. 
a lot of governments around the world have failed, but businesses are the ones that have the ability to be able to talk about what materials they use and talk about um, how they, you know, use their supply chain to bring something to uh, bring a product or a service um, to fruition. So I think that um, we really, and I, and I really believe, and I kind of talk about this a lot in my books, is that business is the biggest tool that we have to um, affect change. Yep. Okay, so I'm going to tap more into that in a minute because we're going to come on to the books. I want to finish with some of the thoughts around junkie media. So I'm also curious around, we're in such a noisy world and I'm always really curious around how do we stand out from the crowd when there is just so much noise. Um, media is obviously notoriously competitive. So what's some of your thoughts around how you cut through the noise? I think the most important thing in cutting through the noise is having a unique position in the market. So why would someone come to you? And that was really important to us. So I, I launched a bunch of websites before we launched Junkie. So we, I, the first website I launched was a, community, a gay and lesbian community website called Same Same when I was about 23 years old. And then we had music websites, we had travel websites. And every time we launched them, I really, really had to look at the market and figure out who is doing what well, what space can we kind of leave and not try to copy? And where is that opportunity to have a unique um, positioning? And so once we found the positioning, we then were really, um, really worked hard at figuring out what is unique tone of voice in that place as well. So I think if anyone is trying to figure out how to break through the noise, the worst possible thing you can do is copy someone else or just try and make more noise. Like if you already believe mm. that there is so much noise in the market, don't make more of it. Just either shut up or have something unique to say. <laughs> And actually, I like your point there around tone of voice as well. It's not just something unique to say. You mentioned tone of voice, and I find that interesting because a lot of, you know, if you look at LinkedIn for 30 seconds, it all still sounds, particularly from a B2B LinkedIn perspective, and this, again, mass generalization here, um, it all sounds quite same, same and still very professional, whereas actually some of the brands I think that are, you know, like who gives a crap and um, Vino Mofo and people like that who are more in that B2C space, but they're having a bit more fun with their tone of voice and a bit more banter because we're all human. It's so much more engaging. A hundred percent. I think tone of voice is probably the biggest brand differentiator that you can have, um, especially when there's a lot of competition, when products can be relatively generic out there, having that tone of voice and giving someone um, a, a reason to to people want to love the things that they buy. Like we're handing our money over to somebody and I want to, I want to hand my money. If I'm buying face cream, I want to hand it to a brand that I really love. And what makes up that love is who who's made it, what it's made from, how it's packaged, how the marketing is, what its tone of voice is, of course, what the product does itself, but all of those other things kind of combine together to make up the brand. And I think if you only focus on the product or you only focus on the marketing without thinking about the whole holistic picture, you're really missing a trick. Yeah, that's gold. 
So final question on, on Junkie Media. You successfully scaled the business. Um, it then was acquired by O Media. Um, so obviously did a great, great job there. What I'm curious about is your own sort of um, sales and growth success story. Is there any strategies for you that stand out as, you know, at the time, this is sort of some of the sales and growth strategies for us that were our, our superpower? Yeah, I have. So I, I came up through the editorial side and had to learn sales as I went. And I was really lucky that my co-founder, Neil Ackland, he came up through the sales side. So a lot of the sales techniques, he I learned from him and we kind of gelled together. And some of the simplest lessons that I learned was, number one, that everything is sales. So every piece of content that you put out there, every press release you do, every award you win, every statement you make to the media, every product you launch, every single thing is sales. So every meeting that I had, even if I was meeting someone to talk about something in editorial, there's always an element of how does this add to sales? How is this going to affect revenue? How is this forging a relationship that we can use to helpfully grow the business? So that was one aspect that I found really important. Um, the second one was we tried to, we, we obviously we had a sales team of, of um, salespeople that would go out to sell advertising onto, onto junkie media. And it's quite, you know, as you know, the process can sometimes be complicated and we found it the best thing to do was to really try to focus on what is one or two key metrics that we could really look at as a way of kind of showing the health of the sales team. And so for us, for example, it was number of meetings in the diary. So generally there was a pretty consistent um, correlation between how many meetings someone was doing and what the revenue they're writing at the end of that one month or quarter. And so therefore, any times when we looked around and we realized that revenue was dropping or it was going down, the one simple thing that we could do, and obviously it was the first in a whole series, was try to get as many meetings as we could and kind of get ourselves back out there. Yeah, I love that. I'm, I'm a massive fan of um, the four disciplines of execution where they talk about what are your lead measures rather than lag measures and then having, you know, your couple goals that you can really focus on. And I think that is sort of very much the same train of thought. Very much so, yeah, and and it's it's just it's kind of breaks something that's quite complicated. Thinking, how do I get more advertising onto this website? Down to something very simple, which is how can I just meet more people and talk to them about what we're doing? And then those conversations are the lead generators that then will flow on to everything after that. Um, the totally, other simple, totally, totally agree. The other very simple thing that I learned, and this kind of came from my editorial days, was about simplifying things as much as possible down to just the really core nugget. And that, for me, the comes back to that everything in sales um, part of the conversation where um, how do you kind of simplify things down so that you can explain it to somebody as easily as possible so that they can then explain it to someone else to hopefully get budget approval to try and um, get budget approved and things like that. So there's this simplifying um, ideas and concepts and what we're trying to sell down to make it as easy as possible. That was a real skill that I learned over the years. I think um, I might butcher this, but I think it was Steve Jobs who talked to you about the fact anyone can make it complicated, but it's hard to make it simple. It's sort of that context. Uh, very much so. My God, I have seen hundreds of decks over the years of presentations <laughs> where they go really complicated and they put every piece of information inside it and it just overloads you with information. Um, and then I've also seen really amazing decks presentations where someone will just really get to the crux of an issue 
either it's an emotional reason why or it's just a really simple great idea and those are the ones that are memorable and those are the ones that generally sell the most yeah and we're seeing a theme at the moment around just make my life easy so the ability to do that is really really powerful if you can cut to the chase you can make it simple everyone can understand it yeah love that so yeah. i want to fast forward with you um to cult status so that was released in 2020 the book i believe yes yeah um which has gone on to be a bestseller and what i like about it is you describe cult status as having a business or project with a dedicated community around it who strongly identify with its purpose and i really like that simple succinct <laughs> um description where do businesses because it's a beast of a question where do businesses even begin to start on a journey for cult status the first place to start is always internal so before you go external if you want to build a really strong community around your business so if you want to build a business that has cult status the very first thing and the most important thing is to look internally and ask yourself a bunch of bunch of questions so the very first step in cult status in like a seven step process is to think impact first. So have a think around what is the point of what I'm, what I'm, what I'm doing? Like why am I getting up in the morning? Why am I wasting my time and my energy to do? And if you can figure out what that is and you figure out internally what the impact that you want to have is, and in cult status, I talk about a really simple way of doing that is coming up with something called an impact statement, which is... My aim in life is to popularize it and make it as commonplace as mission statements. It's a really simple thing that you can do to add on to the end of a mission statement that really qualifies and quantifies how, how much impact you're going to have if you are successful doing what you're doing. So I think that's the most important thing. If someone really wants to create a strong community, look internally first, figure out what impact you want to have. And then your job is just communicating that with as many people as possible and hoping that you find other people who also want to have that same impact, bring them together, and that is the start of a community. Yeah, and I loved, you mentioned there around impact statement, and when I read about that, it, it was actually a concept I hadn't really come across before in the sense of we all know, right, you should have what's your mission statement and those sorts of things, but actually it's not one that um, I had seen. So for businesses writing their impact statement, um, What's, what's the process of how you sort of unpack that? Because I actually think sometimes, I don't know about you, but I find doing the internal work is harder than anything else. I can look at somebody else's business and because I'm not involved in the messiness of it and you're the outsider, it sort of seems relatively easy versus your own. It, when it's close to home, it's so hard sometimes to put your finger on it. Uh, Abby, you, you've, you've nailed it on the head. People, are, people get really, there's, there's a term in marketing called brand myopia which means that you kind of like you get so close to your brand that you can't see anything else. And anyone who runs a business is too close to it to sometimes be able to do this. Um, so my advice is to kind of get some help and, and speak to external people. And it might be your partner. It, they also might be too close to it. It could be um, a family friend. It could be a smart person. Um, and try to do the hard work at the start, ideally before you start a business is the best time to do an impact statement. However, 90% of people I work with have already started businesses um, and when they kind of have time to go back and do their impact statement. Um, 
uh, in the book in cult status that's the easiest way to kind of explain how to create your own impact statement um i also recently uh, launched a impact statement masterclass which is an online course kind of teaching people how to do it as well and in that there's two parts of the process the first part is really everyone doing it themselves going away thinking about it coming up with their ideas and then uh, about once a month i have a live workshop with everyone who's done it the previous month and we work through everyone's impact statement together. Um, I just came off this month's live workshop um, where I worked with a bunch of businesses and it was really, it's always really amazing um, seeing people, seeing that sometimes people, they know the answer themselves, but they just can't quite put it in words. They just can't, can't quite yeah. say it themselves. And my job is, because I've seen hundreds of these, probably thousands, is I look at it and I can just pull it out straight away. And as soon as I pull it out, people are like, that's exactly what I've been trying to say. Um, yeah. And that's not because I'm genius or I'm super smart. It's because I have perspective and I have experience. And they're the two things yeah. that I think are really important in this, in this case. Oh, it's so hard to do for yourself. And what about, because I know some of your client base... Um, is also in the corporate arena. I know a lot of our listeners are in the corporate arena. Um, that's a bit more of a challenging beast. You know, if I decide I want to do it within my business, I can just go do it. I can do the masterclass. I can do that. How about for corporates when sometimes it is like, you know, pushing the elephant, I say, as someone with a corporate background, <laughs> and it's a harder beast. How do you start to get people on board and invested in the corporate context? It's both harder and easier. Um, I'll start with the easier first, is that hopefully if you're in a corporate environment, people should have thought about this before you've got to it. So when you're running a business yourself, you, it's up to you to come up with the idea, you know, come up with it all yourself and push the elephant by yourself. When you're working in a corporate environment, hopefully other people have helped push the elephant with you. And I think it's about one, finding out um, who has done this work internally. Is there documentation around it? Um, what is the purpose? Why are we doing what we're doing? And that's a, a conversation you're going to have with the HR team to ask them um, mm. if anyone had done the work. Hopefully it has been done before. And if it hasn't, there's two ways of approaching it. One is of doing it yourself and going and, and, and if someone's got to do it within the company. So why can't it be you or working with HR to do it? And the second part is maybe even breaking it off into different chunks and smaller chunks and thinking about your department or your area that you work mm. in, do you have a purpose that you guys can really own that's maybe not the wider 10,000-person company's purpose but is the purpose of why you're doing what you're doing? Yeah, and I love that because that might also be a good way. I know um, some of the corporates we've worked with and corporates I've worked in, you know, you might have a corporate social responsibility report and you know the big picture stuff, but you not might not necessarily have translated that down into an impact statement for your part in that or your division or your team in that so I like that idea of breaking it down 100% and, and I have worked recently with some of the biggest companies in the world the biggest tech companies in the world who if you work for what a big tech company um, I won't name who they are to protect the guilty but if you work for a big tech company sometimes you have no say over what their purpose is you're working for them but what you do have say over is your department and your area and so being able to work within that area to define what the impact is, how they can make change, that's really powerful for them. And as long as that ladders up to what the bigger company is doing, um, generally it gets through in corporate environments. I love that. So what are some really good, um, to sort of bring this to life, what are some really good examples of companies um, and businesses that you think have, a, a, like they're the poster child for cult status? 
Um, I always love talking about Australian examples here because I feel like often when we talk about things like this, we talk about Nike and Apple and Red Bull, and I want to talk about Australian companies because we so, should be so proud of what we're doing. So companies, I think, are doing it amazingly. Who gives a crap? Who you mentioned. Um, Simon Griffiths is, is profiled a lot in, in cult status and how him and his co-founders were able to build a really strong community around toilet paper, for Christ's sake. Um, <laughs> I think what they've done is amazing. Um, Zoe Foster-Blake and how she's been able to build a really strong community around GoTo, a skincare brand. Um, that is a great Aussie example. And I remember speaking to Zoe for the book um, when she told me that she's not a very good, she doesn't like business and doesn't think she's a very good business person. And then last year she ended up selling half of her business for $80 million or something crazy like that. Not that it's just money as the sole precursor, but the impact and the amount of people she's been able to reach over that time has been amazing. So I think Zoe is a great example of someone who has cult status. Um, and then the final example is a shoe company that I spent some time over in San Francisco called Allbirds, started by uh, a New Zealand guy, who one of the co-founders, who was the former vice captain of the New Zealand soccer team. And Allbirds makes their shoes out of sustainable materials like eucalyptus and um, New Zealand merino wool. And their whole supply chain from the factories it's made through to they don't use PVC in the soles of their shoes. They use a thing called sweet foam through to how it gets to a customer is all uh, not just carbon neutral. I think it's completely carbon negative. And the tools that they use as a business um, are really amazing in terms of how they're leading the way in terms of uh, sustainability. So I think those three are examples of three businesses in very different areas, toilet paper, face cream and um, shoes and they've got really strong communities around them that um, gives them cult status. Yeah, I love who gives a crap and how they've done it. It is really, really, really interesting. Actually, on that note, you've talked about who does it well. Um, we won't name names for who doesn't do it well, but what's a pitfall or a common mistake when people are going on this journey, they're going through the seven steps, what's sort of the one to watch for and the pitfall that people typically fall into? Ah. Uh. There, there, there's there's a lot um i will i'm gonna give you an example though of a bigger brand who i think can i've got my eye on at the moment that's unilever um only because and this is i'll get to your question in a second but when you you kind of told me about brands that aren't doing it well um unilever actually do do it quite well however their ceo talks a very big game so the ceo came out a few years ago and said any brands that don't have a purpose um, will most likely not be part of the Unilever stable in the next few years. And that's a big call to make when you have hundreds of brands, you know, like Omo and dish, um, dishwasher brands and, you know, a lot of the kind of like a cult, a, a, a toothpaste brands and things like that. Um, and it's a very big call for a big company to make because big companies, you know, have huge effects on supply chains and huge effects on um, things like that. So I've kind of got my eye on Unilever at the moment to kind of watch what they're doing to make sure that they're not just greenwashing and saying that they really care about sustainability and care about um, the future of brands with purpose and they actually live up to that. Um, mm. Sorry, that's not necessarily the answer to that question, but it was just a thought that came into my mind when you said we're not going to name names. I was like, stuff it, let's name names. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to be nice, but go with it. I like it. <laughs> and, well, they've, they've, they can prove me wrong, and I really hope they do because as one of the biggest companies yeah. in the world, um, I really hope they do um, actually prove me right because I, I, I'd like to believe they can get it right. Um, 
pitfalls are um, running too far ahead and not thinking about your impact first, I think is a really important thing. Um, getting overwhelmed by how do you build a, right, a strong community? Oh, my God, there's so many things going on and there's so many big decisions to make. One of the steps I talk about in cult status is to question all the little things first. So kind of build up some of your confidence in some of the smaller ways um, and trying to figure out what are those things that are small things that have a big impact. Um, there's a whole matrix I talk about in cult status. Um, they're two of the biggest watch outs. Yeah, love it. So we all need to start reading it. I'm doing it in reverse order. So um, I'll okay. keep you posted on it. <laughs> So moving to Killer Thinking, which you have just released two or three weeks ago, something like that? About two weeks ago, yeah. I had mine on pre-order because I knew I was speaking to you. So I was like, right, I need to get it fast, get my hands on it. Um, and I am loving it. I actually really like how you've written it because it's easy to read. Um, it's funny. Some of it's made me laugh. It's just, an, it's a great read. So um, congratulations on the launch of an amazing book. I am really, really enjoying myself. Oh, awesome. Thank you. I actually comes back to the whole simplicity thing where I work really hard to make it easy to read. Like I, yeah. I really try hard to kind of write in a really accessible tone and I try and get rid of any superfluous language or anything that kind of doesn't feel like the biggest compliment to me, someone who says, I sat down and read it in a couple of sessions. I just love that. Oh. Yeah, like health warning to everyone. It's pretty addictive. You can't put it down. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. I've kind of started reading it a couple of times at night. I'm like, oh God, it's now 11 o'clock at night. I'm still reading. Um, <laughs> but it is it's brilliant. I'm loving it. So first thing that I noticed that stood out for me was I kind of didn't realize or appreciate at first that killer in the killer thinking was actually an acronym and then what it stood for. And I love that. So can you talk to us about what killer thinking means and the acronym that you used? Yeah, sure thing. So, so the book started with me thinking through what do I think are some of the best ideas in the world? Um, and I started uh, calling up people and chasing them down, every, everything from Movember, which I think is one of a, a brilliant idea, to a thing called La Ciclovia, which is uh, in Bogota, where they shut down the streets of Bogota to cars um, every Sunday and about a million people come out and use walk and um, cycle. And uh, Keep Cup, which has obviously now kind of become its own generic term. and I was really intrigued with some of these businesses. So I spoke to the founders of them. And as I spoke to the founders, I started taking notes around what do these businesses have in common? I started then comparing all the notes. And when I'd done this dozens and dozens of times, a couple of things started jumping out at me. And I then fit all those things into the acronym KILLER, which fits nicely for killer thinking. So KILLER stands for the best ideas in the world, are kind, impactful, loved, lasting, easy, and repeatable. And it's a really simple way of remembering almost as a checklist for you to go through or a filter to put things through when you're thinking of an idea to think of, is this idea kind? How can I make it kinder? Is this idea impactful? Is it loved, lasting, easy, and repeatable? And if you use that as a filter to put your ideas through, that is one of the ways that you can take a good idea turn it into a great idea and turn a great idea into a really killer idea. Yeah, I love that. And what I also love that you talk about is, um, this one actually really surprised me, I'll be really honest. I think that a lot of us, and I, I'm putting my hand up and including myself, um, think of, you know, there's really creative people and there's not so creative people and we almost put ourselves in boxes. 
And when you, you know, so for some people, they might go, oh, well, you know, killer thinking, I'm just not that creative. I don't really, you know, that's not me. That's not my flair. But I love that you talked about creativity is a skill and that you might, I'm going to butcher this, so I'll get you to talk to it, but you might just not have had the opportunity to, to show it yet. Can you talk to us about that? Because I've got to say, that was one of the things that I read and I went, oh, and I kind of called bullshit on myself that sometimes I've gone, oh, I'm not that creative. And, I, yeah. and I'm going to imagine a lot of people do fall into that bucket as well. And Abby, I hate hearing someone say I'm not that creative. It, it kind of like makes me shudder almost because we've been told that creativity is a talent, so not a skill. And so talent is something that you think you've either got it or you don't. Are you, you know, obviously you need to work at it and then most creatives do, but there's this kind of like sense that creativity is something that you're either born with or you don't um, have it. And that is just bullshit. It is, creativity is a skill. It is a muscle. It's something that you work at. The people who consider themselves creative weren't born that way. They've just believed in themselves that they, I'm creative. I can paint. The first time they painted was pretty shit. The second time was slightly less shit. The third time, <laughs> the thousandth time, the 10,000th time was pretty good. And that's what it comes down to. And creativity, coming up with ideas, refining ideas, anyone can do it. You just need to practice. And the first part of that is having the mindset and empowering yourself to think, I am creative. I can come up with great ideas. And that is really, if that's if there's one outtake from this book, it's for someone to pick it up who doesn't think they're creative, read this book and be like, you know what? I reckon I can come up with a good idea and then use some of the techniques inside it to actually come up with some of your own ideas. Yeah. I love um, Jim Quick, if you've come across him, he's one world sort of leading um brain and memory coaches and he talks about if you fight for your limitations you get to keep them so various things that I've you know thought oh I'm not that x or whatever it might be and I sort of see that in the creativity thing and I, I definitely think we see the same thing in sales oh I'm not a natural salesperson as if it, you know we're just born out the room and you can sell and actually it's a skill so I I love that concept around creativity being a skill that you can develop and you can hone and you can work on and maybe you've just not had the opportunity yet yeah, 100%. Um, I, I couldn't agree with it more. So one of the parts that made me laugh um, as you were sort of stepping through some of your process around be your problems therapist. And I literally laughed out loud. I think my husband was trying to sleep and I'm reading and laughing um, because I just love how you put it, like that the language is just brilliant around it. So can you talk to us about be your problems therapist? Yeah, this is probably one of the most important steps when you're trying to solve a creative problem is often we dive straight into the solution or drive straight into coming up with ideas or throwing something against a wall and seeing if, if it sticks. Um, whereas one of the most important steps and something that most of us gloss over is spending time understanding the problem better than anyone else. So how can we really get inside the problem? Um, and the term, yeah, the term is uh, be your problems therapist. How can you really kind of get to know your problem and help solve some of its problems? Um, and it's a step that if you often, you know, do a group creative ideation session or a brainstorm, often you might spend, I estimate, and having sat through hundreds of brainstorms over the years, 1%, 2% of the time looking at the problem and you dive straight into what are the solutions. Um, mm. And instead, I think you should spend about a third of the time 
being your problems therapist, so really understanding what your problem is, about a third of the time doing the next step, which is called fit your own mask first, which is coming up with your own ideas by yourself without anyone else's preconceived notions. And then the final third of the time is then when you start plussing each other's ideas, which is when you start sharing the ideas with other people. Most of us yeah. dive straight into that third step and miss those first two steps. Do you think there's also, because something that I notice um, is that I think we all almost um, go native or we become blinkered. And so we sort of go, oh, I, I know my clients' problems, their problems are this. And in a way, it's sometimes coming at it with a fresh pair of eyes and a fresh lens. Um, and that's why sometimes someone coming in new can be so interesting because they spot things that you don't because you've gone native. Do you know what I mean uh, by that? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah, I, I, a thousand percent. I think it comes again to this brand myopia thing that we talk about in marketing where you're so close to a brand that you actually can't see it. You need someone, an unexpected person at the table. You need someone with perspective. You need a consultant. You need, sometimes it is your partner, to just really be able to look at a problem with fresh eyes. Um, and that is why the therapist idea works really nicely as well, because generally you go to a therapist because they are not part of the problem that you're trying to solve. They're someone who's a bit, you know, um, arm's length. They've never heard of this before. So they can give you a perspective that um, people that are too close to it can't give you. Yep. And when you narrow the field on your, so you're using the process, you're narrowing the field and perhaps you come down to your final two contenders. And I'm being really selfish here because I'm working on something at the moment. I've got down to final two contenders. So I'm using you as my therapist. Okay. <laughs> How do you, I'm cheating. It's my podcast. <laughs> you're allowed to do that. Oh, thanks. Well, uh, you know, might as well take the opportunity. How do you decide between the two ideas when you've got it down to your final two? Yeah, so if you've got the final two, if you if you genuinely think they're just as good as each other, there's a couple of things you can do. And um, one thing's in the book, I don't know if you've got this section yet, talks about winners and losers. Um, so it talks about putting an idea through the lens of who wins with this idea and who loses. And that's a kind of a simple way of looking at it. Um, another way is describing it to somebody, somebody that you know in person and watching their body language when they do it. So not what they say, because often someone will say, and I, the final step in the book, um, once again, I'm giving this a bit away, but when you get to the end, you'll find that you're, it's called listen with open ears. And it essentially means that when you talk to somebody and explain the idea to them, um, watch what they say, sorry, watch what they're not saying. <laughs> So look at their body language, see how they, are they open to this? Do they think it's a great idea? Are they like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. You know, and they've kind of got their arms folded as, they, as they're saying that. Um, and then you can even ask them to describe the idea back to you. So kind of make someone synthesize it back to you and you start then kind of getting whispers back to you and people can either synthesize it in a good way or synthesize it in a bad way. Um, one of the ways that I tested a bunch of concepts on this book was on my husband, who I experimented on on many times, and I would sometimes <laughs> tell him something and not tell him that I was going to test him in a week's time to see if he remembered what I told him, but as a way of figuring out if, some, if something's memorable. So killer, for example, I told him what the killer stand for, and then a week later I was like, hey, what, does, what do you think killer stands for? And then see if he can remember, kind, impactful, love, lasting, easy, repeatable. Um, I did it with the cerebration model where I talked through ways of doing group uh, creative ideation 
And there's three parts of it, blowing up a balloon, writing out cards and sharing the presents. I won't explain that in too much detail. Have you read the book if someone's interested in what that, what I mean by all of that. But I would test out this model often on my husband and that's a way of figuring out if something's a good idea or not on kind of how stick, sticky it is in someone's memory. I love that. I have a massive amounts of empathy now. Your husband and my husband should talk because my husband's constantly <laughs> just being battered with my ideas and what do you think to this? So, um, yeah, we'll get them together for a, for a beer or something to have I therapy. And... Poor, poor people. <laughs> so what's your thoughts around some of the more crazy ideas? So, for example, I interviewed Jacinta McDonnell, who co-founded Anytime Fitness. And when they were talking to the industry around, we're going to do gyms 24-7, Everyone just thought it was an utterly shit idea. And why on earth would you need that? So the response when they were sort of testing and feeling it out was really negative. Um, so how do you sort of balance that in terms of feedback? Because in that instance, if she had taken that at face value, she never would have done it. Yeah, I think I think it's one, figuring out who you're, who you're getting that advice from. So is it someone that you really mm. trust or is it from customers? Because sometimes... That can be a um, they can be diametrically opposed. Um, the second thing is sometimes just doing an idea and seeing what the reaction is then. So I know that open up a gym is probably an expensive thing to just test to see if it works. But you, there was probably the first one that they opened, and it probably wasn't that expensive to try and do compared to you know opening up however many gyms they have now. Um, so I think just sometimes if you really believe in the idea, yes, take other people's feedback on board but don't listen to it completely. Like sometimes you yeah. have to tune out other people and that's that's very much a case by case depending on what the idea is, um, how expensive it's going to be to test. But there's always little small ways of testing out your idea um, before you really dive into it and spend millions and millions of dollars. Yeah, I love that. I, re I love the thought of like what the minimum viable, you know, thing that you can do, minimum viable product you can go with. Um, and sort of doing it in a safe way to sort of see what what reaction you get and hone and tweak. And on that note, you talk about, you know, when you are going to launch and you are going to go for it because you've set on that idea, you talk about launching into a rising tide. And I really love that. Like, again, you've got amazing wording in the book. I really like the, the way you, you positioned it. How do you know that the tide is going to rise? Like, what are you looking for? What are some of the signs in the market that you're looking for? Because sometimes I think we can, you know, we want first mover advantage. We want to go quick. Um, and there can be some early signs, but, you know, we don't really know. And so what are you looking for when you're talking about launching into the rising tide? Um, so firstly, thanks for saying that you like some of the terminology because I spent a lot of time going over what each section is called and what's a terminology that you can use and how do I best describe that step. And if I showed you my um, exercise, my exercise, my notes and my early drafts, there's probably each step probably has about three or four different iterations before it gets to the final one. Um, and that's because I think language and how we express it is really important. So both in my first book, Cult Status and In Killer Thinking, trying to make those steps memorable and the steps mean something and the steps also to have a little bit of attitude in them and make them a bit more memorable. It comes back to that tone of voice thing. Um, I think my first draft that I handed in, um, I couldn't even remember. That's how unmemorable it was. But <laughs> the first, um, I think the first uh, step was understand your problem. And I kind of, I did that and I was like, oh, it's so boring. It's not me. And then I kind of, the idea of, be, be your problems therapist came up 
and it makes it a lot more memorable. It kind of says the same thing, but it says it in just a way more memorable and unique way. So, yeah, and when you're yeah. reading it a lot of the time, you do go like, yes, that's exactly what it feels like. Or it's funny. You just engage with it differently. Yeah, yeah, it just it makes it memorable. So you're coming, coming up with ideas by yourself is fit your own mask first. Um, and so just thinking through that as a concept, it gives you a lot more to talk about, a lot more to think about. You get to explain the analogy in the book. So the second last step, um, so killer thinking is made up of two parts. The first part is killer ideas, so how to come up with great ideas. And then the final part is the last two steps, a killer execution. So how do you actually bring some of them to life? Now, I'm very aware that devoting two chapters to how to bring complicated ideas to life is not exhaustive. So it's not meant to be a definitive guide. But I talked about two of the most important things. And the first one of those, as you mentioned, is launch into a rising tide. And what that means is how can you look around and see what movements are growing out there that are already have momentum behind them that you can launch something into the back of because that is how you grow a really great business and that is how you launch a killer idea and give it killer execution because if there's a movement that's growing around you that makes about three quarters of your job is done so talking about sales if you are going with the tide as opposed to against it that is where a lot of the momentum and energy can come from so in the book mm. i talk about using doing simple things like looking up Google Trends, which is a probably the most underused but most amazing tool on the planet. And that tool looks at every single search term that everyone does on the planet using Google and allows anybody for free to look at that history over time, to look at search terms and see how they're going up, look at different countries, look at worldwide trends. It's a phenomenal piece of software, um, not software, just a phenomenal tool that anyone can use. So looking at Google Trends, um, I looked in the book and give just very quick overviews of some of the big macro trends happening from everything from the plant-based future. So people, you know, eating less meat through to non-alcoholic drinks, through to decentralization of finance, um, all of these trends that are really taking off. And obviously this book is written now in 2022, but hopefully these trends will keep going for the next few years. And if you can find a tide that is riding, is, sorry, is rising, and launch your idea into that, three quarters of your job is done. Mm, I think you're helping me make my decision. Selfishly, I'm using this podcast for me. That's great. Is one of your ideas has it more of a rising tide than the other idea? One of them's probably got, as soon as you're talking about it, I'm like, yeah, one of them's got more to it than the other. So yeah, that's, that's interesting. So I actually want to go... Um, with what you just talked to you there around killer execution. I, when I saw the part of the book where actually you said, right, we've got killer thinking and killer execution. I love that because I'm quite obsessed with execution. And I think, you know, that's where a lot of the time the great idea falls down. I think the last stat I saw on this was something like 2% of leaders feel confident they can execute their idea. So I love that you did, you know, have a section around um, killer execution. So talk to us about that. You talked about rising tide, but what else is there to killer execution so that that idea actually sees the light of day and we don't give up too soon? So funnily enough, the very first outline of this book had equal times given to killer ideas and killer execution in the book. And the more I started writing that section, the more I started realizing that I was starting to go into kind of time management and project management and how to launch something. And there's a gazillion books out there that all explain how to do that better than I can. 
Um, so instead, I think the two really important things that I looked at were the launch into a rising tide, which I spoke to, and then about feedback and around really listening to what people are saying. So whether it's the minimum viable product, the MVP, or whether it is um, you even pre-idea, you start talking to people about it and kind of gauging what their reaction is, or the iterations that you have once an idea is live and you keep tweaking it and tweaking it and tweaking it. Um, I gave a really, there's a really great example in the book of Linktree, um, who uh, I've, I've worked and known with, known the boys who started that and worked with them over many, many years. And they've done a, such an amazing job. And it all came from, they had another business. They saw this, which was a, um, which still exists as a, a digital music agency, a music digital content agency called Bolster. And they saw this need to create one link to put on their Instagram pages for their clients. They got one of their coders to code it up in a couple of hours. They launched it and they realized, wow, there's this real need for this. And then they kept on slowly iterating on the product, slowly started moving across more of their staff over to there to now Linktree, the company that creates the, the link in bio and kind of really created mm-hmm. that entire movement, is now valued at one point something billion dollars and They've just built this really phenomenal business that has something like 30,000 people signing up every single day. And it's all because they listened to what the needs of their customers were and they saw there was a need. And then once it was there, they kept on iterating to make it better. Yeah. And I love, I can't remember who talks about this. I want to say it's Tim Ferriss, but there's someone who, I'm going to butcher it, but that talks about like scratching your own itch. And in a way, they were scratching their own itch because they needed it for their purposes. Nice. Yeah, I haven't heard that term, but but I, really, I like it. <laughs> I'll find out who said it after I butchered it. Um, so we've covered a huge, huge, huge amount of ground. If For people listening, if there's sort of one thing they could start with, one thing to take away, I'm asking you a super, super unfair question, <laughs> given that we've covered so much ground. What would, you know, when people are starting to do this step change around, okay, how do I build my business towards cult status or how do I start to have killer thinking? It's really like, I guess there's a common theme as well around just elevating your thinking, elevating your position and playing a bigger game and and playing on your A game. What sort of for you is one thing you would love people to do and to start with? I think one thing that unites both cult status and killer thinking is that before you can start working on something else, you need to look internally. So both cult status is about thinking about your impact and killer thinking is about coming up with your own ideas first before sharing them with other people. So I think if there's one thing, although we live in a very connected world and everyone is constantly having meetings and we're throwing ideas around with other people and we're constantly asking for feedback, sit down and spend some time doing the internal work first by yourself. Mm. Then and only then should you go out and share it um, with it, with everyone else. So I think that's the most important outtake is that out of everything that happens, just concentrate on yourself first, get your own head straight, and then go out and start um, communicating and sharing the idea with other people and trying to build a community around what you're doing. Love that. Great, great, great takeaway. Um, I'm going to ask you one cheeky final question. Book recommendations other than your own. So obviously we are highly recommending yours and we'll put the links in the bio. Other than your own, any book recommendations to leave us with of this is a must read book? Um, Yes. And I I tend to think of most recent books I've read. Um, And I recently loved Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss, which is all about negotiating. 
um, and he was a former FBI's head of hostage negotiation. And he writes this book about negotiating in terms of negotiating business contracts, negotiating hostages. Um, phenomenal because it has really simple tips in there as well. Um, so it's called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. I've heard several people talk about that. So I'm going to be ordering that now because that's, that, that's a couple of times I've heard that same book. So I'm going to be getting that. Um, Tim, thank Abby, you so, so good. And it will, it will really help your, sorry, it, it is such a good book and it will really help your negotiation skills as well. It's just, I, I found it really useful for me negotiating contracts, negotiating um, agreements, negotiating price, all of these things. It's really helped me. So I highly recommend that book. I am going to check that out for sure. So Tim, thank you so, so, so much for joining us. If people want to hang out, come find you. Obviously, I can put the links in the show notes. Um, where's the best place to come find you and and order your books? The best place is just head to my website, which is timduggan.com.au. That's timduggan.com.au. Perfect. And the masterclass that you mentioned before, we'll put the link in the show notes as well if anyone's interested in the masterclass. Awesome. Great. Perfect. Thank you. I really, really enjoyed the chat. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for tuning in. Now, before you leave us, if you would like to download our latest white paper on the state of sales and marketing, which unpacks four steps to drive hyper growth in your business, please visit whitepaper salesredefined.com.au. And if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure that you subscribe so that you never miss a future episode. And finally, we would absolutely love it and appreciate it if you could leave us a review and maybe even share with a friend. We'll see you next time.